What up, everybody? It's Tyler. This is Danny. And this is another episode of Fried Squirms. And I'm not fried enough yet. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I haven't smoked any weed in like an hour and a half. Maybe like two hours. It's been over two hours because I just got done recording a different podcast. That's <laughs> nice. how long we talked. So <laughs> Hey, nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I've been uh, been kind of in and out with sativa. I've been smoking on kind of last little bit of that at home, but... Yeah, I brought over a new strain this week, so I'm pretty excited about that. Right, yeah, so I guess we'll get to our green hits. I've brought this in before. We're still like a week away from the untether, a little bit over a week, like week and a day, something like that. I don't know. I don't <laughs> know how time works anymore. So I'm still just getting the tried and true. Love my shop to death, but it basically only stocks the tried and true. So I'm bringing in some Jack H today, Sativa Dominant Hybrid named after the legendary marijuana rights activist fruity peppery herbal comes from some northern lights and shiva skunk and a haze hybrid back in its lineage there's a ton of different jack h phenotypes i'm not sure which one i actually have but they all kind of behave pretty close to the same so i'm excited to hit that what did you bring this week yeah so this week i did try out a new strain from my dispensary and this one is black magic kush so it said that this is an indica dominant strain with mysterious and arcane genetics sometimes it is referred to black magic and depending i guess on which seed bank you get it from the genetics are a little different here and there mm -hmm. but essentially what you get with this is you'll get some nice jade green foliage bright orange pistols said it looks nearly as good as it tastes which you know i'm not complaining the terpene profile on it, it's soaked in sweetness, berry, and herbaceous overtones. It delivers a pleasurable variety of flavors, aromas, and effects that help nullify stress and encourage rest. So because this is an indica, you got to be careful because this guy will put you out. It's good if you just want to take the edge off. If you're having issues sleeping, this guy will tuck you right to bed. Well, fuck it. I'm just going to talk through it. So. <laughs> <laughs> nice, man. I'm going to fire that up. Well, I did mention prior to us recording like i had tried out a little bit earlier this week in my vape and that's something i noticed immediately was just a nice soothing body high i was still able to function but it kind of washes over you in waves it'll kind of come in and out of sleepiness Ooh, well i like what i'm hitting so far nice. let's uh get a little bit further into this and we'll get a little bit further into this movie this week we'll be talking about the relic from 1997 and let's get into the guts and bolts on that bitch <laughs> Guts and Bolts. All right, so now that we got some of these J's fired up, let's hit some of this Guts and Bolts. It's where we like to tell you who and what went into this movie, give you a little bit of a spoilers-free synopsis to start, and just try to sell you on it a little bit before we go into talking about how this movie made us squeal. But to start, I guess I'll go with that synopsis. Oh, shit, spoiler-free? <laughs> okay, during a fundraising gala a monster gets loose at the chicago museum of natural history there we go it's a monster movie yeah creature feature creature feature that's what you're getting who and what went into this danny yeah so starting off this is a gentleman we've talked about before and he is our director and coincidentally enough our cinematographer and this is a gentleman we've talked about on episode 151 on our episode of End of Days, and I'm talking about Peter Hyams. Oh. 
Now, some of the other works that he's known for, and I mentioned this last time when we talked about him on End of Days, is he kind of started off a little bit in sci-fi with films like Capricorn 1. He went on to direct films such as The Star Chamber in 2010, which is a sequel to 2001 Space Odyssey. He wound up directing Running Scared in 1986. Really good comedy. He was the executive producer on The Monster Squad, film I grew up watching. There's another film in 92 I haven't seen probably since around that time. Actually starred John Ritter, and that film is Stay Tuned. Pretty decent little comedy slash I wouldn't call it horror, but it has a little bit of that element. Then he started working with Jean-Claude Van Damme on such films as Time Cop and Sudden Death. He went on to also direct such films as A Sound of Thunder, Beyond a Reasonable Doubt, and Universal Soldier Regeneration. And he did a little bit of television work, just a couple episodes here and there. Nothing too much of note, but he's still pretty active, which is really cool. All right, moving forward, we have several writers on this project. We have Douglas Preston in Lincoln Child, which the novel was based off of. If I'm not mistaken, it was like 95 when that came out. Yeah, I was going to say, as soon as you said writers, I was like, well, maybe we should mention that this was based on a book. And then as far as the screenplay goes, we have several people. And the first person I'm going to bring up is Amy Holden Jones and Amy. She's known for writing the screenplays for such films as The Slumber Party Massacre you might have seen her work in Mystic Pizza. She was also the writer for Made to Order, Indecent Proposal, the Beethoven films. You might have also seen her work in such things as The Getaway, The Rich Man's Wife. She also did some television work for the pilot of HMS, Black Box, and The Resident, which is currently running on Fox. We also have John Raffo as another one of the writers on this team. He's only done a couple of works, but some of those are really interesting. He helped write the screenplay for Dragon, the Bruce Lee story from 93, and the film Johnny Skidmarks. All right, we also have a couple, and this is Rick Jaffa and Amanda Silver. And some of their notable works include the scripts for the Planet of the Apes franchise, which include Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, War of the Planet of the Apes. They also help co-write Jurassic World and In the Heart of the Sea, which is really neat. And looks like they're announced to be co-writers for James Cameron's Avatar Part 2. Oh, shit. Yeah, so got some big hitters so, on this. Oh, I've read and I saw an interview about the writing process for the Avatar sequels. Technically, I feel like I don't think they're going to get the credit because of the way it was divvied up. But gotcha. they've worked on all of the Avatar sequels That's because awesome. of the way that the writing room worked for it. Understandable, so yeah. They're getting credited for that movie, but they helped create the story for all, like, five that Jeez. are supposed to be coming or whatever. That's so. pretty amazing. So hats off to them. That's awesome. All right, moving forward, we have our editor, another gentleman we talked about before. Part of the reason is because Peter Hyams likes to use a lot of the same people in his films, and this gentleman is Stephen Kemper, we talked about him on episode 151 because of End of Days. But some of his other bodies of work include editing for Tales from the Crypt, the episode Dick That Cat, He's Real Gone in 1989. You might have seen his work on New Jack City, Time Cop, Sudden Death, Fair Game, Face Off, Mission Impossible Part 2, the 2004 Punisher, the film Legion, and more recently the film The Meg from 2018. All right, another gentleman that we're not unfamiliar with, and that gentleman is John Debney. Now, we've talked about him on three episodes. We talked about him on End of Days, episode 160, I Know What You Did Last Summer, and today's episode. And if you're more interested in some of his bodies of work, I mean, 
some of those things include like The Passion of the Christ, Iron Man 2, The Greatest Showman. Just a lot of work, let's put it that way. He's either composed music for film or he's been a part of the soundtrack on a shitload of films. So yeah, if you're curious, I'd say check out the database. It's got a lot more works there. All right, moving forward, we have special effects teams. And there's a big one on this one. Big bad one on this one. Huge one on this one. Right, so... Especially in this time period. No doubt. No doubt about it. So... Before I get to that gentleman, I'll name a couple of the other special effects teams, and those include Band from the Ranch Entertainment. They help with the on-screen computer graphics. Blue Sky, VIFX, they help with the visual effects. We have Video Image, they help with the visual effects and 3D animation. And, of course, Stan Winston Studio for the live-action creature effects. So all of the close-ups and things of that you see of the creature, it was all practical effects. My Stan Winston's company is really cool. All right, we have a ton of production companies. I don't know if I want to go through all of them. I'll name a couple of them, but we have the BBC, British Broadcasting Corporation, Cloud9 Entertainment. We have Paramount Pictures, Polygram Film Entertainment, Toho Towa, Universal Pictures, and a handful of others. This was produced by Gail Ann Hurd and Sam Mercer. The distributor was Paramount Pictures for the 1997 United States theatrical release. Its release date was here in the States on January 10th, 1997. It had an estimated budget anywhere between 40 to $60 million, I guess, depending on the source that you're looking at. And it grossed worldwide right about $34 million. So, I mean, it didn't make its money back, but uh, it's still not bad. I'll get into some of that a little bit later on yeah. in the next section. And I do have a tagline for this. Ooh. I have, a mind is a terrible thing to waste, especially if you're really hungry. Okay, I like that. That's fine. Yeah, it's not bad. I see another one here just on the poster that I'm looking at right in front of me. Mm -hmm. I kind of like this, too. They did the unthinkable. They brought it back. That's true, too. <laughs> you can't fault them for that, man. That's pretty good. All right, so the cast, I mean, star-studded for the most part. Maybe not so much at this time period, but I'm sure a lot of people know who these people are now, but... I'm going to lead off with Penelope Ann Miller plays the role of Dr. Margot Green in this film. Adventures in Babysitting's Penelope Ann Miller? Yeah, I know, man. It's pretty cool. Like, so with some of these actors and actresses, I'll probably just name Cops. a few of them. Yeah, so Kindergarten Cop, she was in Awakenings, she was in The Freshman, you might have seen her in Other People's Money, Big Top Pee Wee, she was also in Carlito's Way. She started doing a couple of silent films, believe it or not. She did some stuff like Chaplin, Along Came a Spider, and The Artist, which is really well, neat. I was going to say, as as much as the titles I was naming off, like she was doing like serious films at the time, too. So She was. I mean, she's a really good dramatic actress. She did some comedies, things of that nature. This was actually her first foray into horror. A little trivia there. All right, moving forward, we have Tom Sizemore plays the role of Lieutenant Vincent D'Agosto. He, now, <laughs> you're talking about somebody who's got some credits underneath his belt. Some of those credits include Born on the Fourth of July. You might have seen him in Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man, Passenger 57, True Romance, Natural Born Killer, Strange Days, Heat, Saving Private Ryan, Red Planet, Black Hawk Down, Pearl Harbor. Polly Shore is dead. More recently, I actually saw him on... Twin Peaks, the Showtime revival back oh, in 2017. Shit. He was uh, on a few episodes. It's kind of like an insurance salesman. Not bad. Not bad. It was kind of cool to see him back in some stuff like that. And some people who are into video games, you might have heard his voice as Sonny Ferrelli in Grand Theft Auto Vice City. All right, moving forward, we have 
Linda Hunt, she plays the role of Dr. Ann Cuthbert. And something she shares in common with Penelope, as you might have seen her in Kindergarten Cop, which is kind of neat. Yeah. She was also in a David Lynch film, Dune, back in 1984. She was also in Silverado. You might have seen her in such things as If Looks Could Kill. She was in Younger. Younger. She was also a voice actress in Pocahontas. That's the Disney's Pocahontas, which is really neat. And Pocahontas, too. She was also in Yours, Mine, and Ours in Stranger Than Fiction. I've seen her, actually, because I mentioned this show several times, because she actually voiced a character on Carnival, HBO's oh, Carnival, yeah. from 2003 through 2005, which is really neat. And when I saw who she voiced, I was like, oh, no wonder. No wonder why I didn't see her. <laughs> it's a character that you never see, but you always hear the voice of. They're a part of a caravan. Yeah. Well, and you pointed out the, the video game work for Tom Sizemore. I should oh, point out man. that Linda Hunt was the narrator in, I think, All of every them, wasn't it? God of War except the newest one. That is pretty wild. Yeah, the narrator for all of those. It's like, that is pretty damn awesome. We have James Whitmore. He plays the role of Dr. Albert Frock. Now, this is more of an... Tony winner. Yeah, it's like, he's an accomplished uh, stage actor. Emmy winner. Also won a Golden Globe. Never got the Oscar Ah. for the EGOT. But still, it's pretty amazing when you think of that. Now, some of the things I think of him from, right, if we're just looking through films, it would have to be a little bit more recently because of the Shawshank Redemption as Brooks Hatlin. Really sad ending, unfortunately, in that film for him. But some other films include such things as Tora, Tora, Tora. He was also in such things as Glory, Glory. He was in such things as Swing Vote. You might have seen him in The Twilight Zone all the way back in the 60s for the episode of On Thursday We Leave From Home. He's also been in such things as Fun with Dick and Jane, the film The Majestic, which is another Jim Carrey film. It's really good, dude. I highly recommend that one. And one of his final appearances, if not his final appearance, was on a CSI crime scene investigation back in 2007. So, like you were mentioning, accomplished actor, dating all the way back from the 40s all the way up until 2007. All right, we have Clayton Rohner plays the role of Sergeant Hollingsworth in this film. Now, looking at his film career, right, there was a film back in the 80s I used to watch a shit ton of, and actually a film I watched more recently. But the one I'm going to start off with first is the film Just One of the Guys, which there was an Amanda Bynes remake. That's fucking right. Oh, shit. Man, 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 man. Yeah, dude. So I seen Just One of the Guys countless times in the 80s. And then the following year, 1986, he did the film April Fool's Day, which is a film actually my sister and I watched on April Fool's Day this year. He went on to do such things as I, Madman. You might have seen him at Caroline at Midnight, the film Naked Souls. Sometimes they come back for more. (laughs) He was also in the films From Above. One that surprised the shit out of me because I haven't seen it yet was The Human Centipede 3, the final sequence. Right. That's what I just looked over. I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, and then, of course, he's done a lot of television. He's done 18 episodes of Murder One back in 96 through 97. He actually had a spot on WWE Raw back in 1999, which kind of blew my mind a little bit. It's like, what is he doing with that? (laughs) And more recently... I feel like that would have been when I was still watching, too. Yeah, it's like, that was about the time... I was getting close to falling out, but not quite with uh, wrestling. Yeah, I saw that he did some episodes of such things as Bones, Daybreak, The Mentalist, Dollhouse, Castle. He was on Justified, Burn Notice. He was also in the television show Ozark, which I've been hearing a lot of lately, too. So cool to see him still getting some work, man. Really good actor. 
All right, we have Chi Moi Lo. He plays the role of Dr. Greg Lee in this film. And he actually shares some things in common with a couple of other actors and actresses in this. But if you look at some of his works, it starts off with such things as Indecent Proposal. You might have seen him in Hot Shots Part Two. He was in Gleaming the Cube, which is a really cool Christian Slater film. You actually get to see Tony Hawk in that. He was also in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the film. You might have seen him in China Cry. He was in The Last Days in Kindergarten Cop, and he did pretty much all those Vanishing Sun films and television series, so for people who are familiar with that, you've probably seen him in those. I could have done real homework for this podcast, but I'm figuring this out right now, but I realized he looked familiar the entire time I saw him, and now I know why, and it's because the sheer amount of times, even though he only played Dope Dealer... Right. It's because of the sheer amount of times I watched Kindergarten Cop when I was young. Understandable, yeah. Probably combined with him being one of the vampires in Buffy. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? But the entire time I was looking at him, I was like, he looks fucking familiar to me. And then I just didn't do you know, like, like, oh, good homework. Oh, yeah. That's... <laughs> now I know. <laughs> All right. So moving forward, we have Robert Lester who plays the role of Mayor. Oh, I suppose he also looks familiar to me. I'll I'll get to that. No, it's okay. Robert Lester, some people might know him for such things as, let's see, I'm going to go back with Christmas Evil from 1980. He was in Poltergeist Part 2, The Other Side. He was also in Running Scared. You might have seen him in The Monster Squad as Eugene's dad. He was in such films as Die Hard, Ernest Saves Christmas. You might have seen him in Great Balls of Fire. He was in such things as the 1998 Godzilla he was also in End of Days as Carson. Yeah, let's see, he was in American Rhapsody and Best Wishes for Tomorrow and little spots here and there for television. Charlie's Angels from 1981 and Mary with Children might be some of note. All right, moving forward, I have Diane Robin, who plays the role of Mrs. Owen. You might have seen her in such things as Adventures in Babysitting. She was in RoboCop and Sudden Death, just to name a few of her credits. And then she also did some television spots on such things as American Dad. You might have seen her in Malcolm in the Middle and things of that nature, so pretty neat. All right, we have Louis Van Bergen, who plays the role of Dr. John Whitney in this. All right, so Lewis has been in such things as Bugsy. You might have seen him in Pinocchio's Revenge. He went on to do such things as Street Night. He was also in such things as The Equalizer television show back in 1986 through 1988. He was in Moon and Scorpio, Savage Dawn, and like I said, mostly some television spots here and there from Airwolf, MacGyver, The Fall Guy, things like that, Dukes of Hazard. so... All right, we have Francis X. McCarthy. He plays the role of George Blaisdell. But some of his film credits are actually really cool. Include such things as Basketball, is a film I've been talking about a lot yeah. recently, which is kind of odd. He was in the 1987 film Summer School, which one I've mentioned before. I highly recommend that one as well. Oh, shit. He is Dr. Kaiser in Basketball. It's crazy, isn't it? Holy fuck. Okay. I love that movie. I love that movie as well. He was also in a Steve Martin film, The Man with Two Brains, and you might have seen him more recently in the film Interstellar. All right, I have Constant Towers, who plays the role of Mrs. Blaisdell in this film. You might have seen her because she was in General Hospital from 1997 all the way through 2019 as Helena Cassidine for 144 episodes. She goes all the way back because she did some westerns for such films as like The Horse Soldiers. She was in the film Shock Corridor and A Perfect Murder, just to name a few of her films. 
We've got Audrey Lindley plays Dr. Zizek in this film. Here's something interesting. Just reading a little bit of trivia so for people who are curious. Now, I mentioned James Whitmore a little earlier. And he and Audra are actually a married couple prior to this film. But before they both were signed on for this, they hadn't seen each other in 18 years. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, so I was like, that's kind of interesting. But... One of those actresses, once again, she goes all the way back from the 40s, so you might not be familiar with some of those, but some films you might be familiar with is The Heartbreak Kid from 1972. She was in the film Troop Beverly Hills in 1989, The New Age, Sudden Death, and Shoot the Moon. All right, I want to name a few other actors and actresses, and that'll pretty much round out our cast and crew. We have David Aaron Provel. He plays like one of the security guards in the control booth or control room in this film. But you might recognize him because he's been in a couple of uh, Martin Scorsese films, which include things like Mean Streets. You actually might have seen him as Richie April in the HBO television show The Sopranos. Some of his other works include such things as Monster Squad was actually a television show. You might have seen him in The Star Chamber, Knight Rider, which is kind of cool. He was in The Equalizer as well. He actually was in such things as Innocent Blood, actually a really good independent mm. horror film. He was in Smoking Aces. More recently, he was in such things as Aquarius. You might have seen him in the film Papa more recently as well, so it's kind of neat seeing him in this. And the last person I'll round this out with is... Donald Patrick Harvey II, he's an American actor and a voice actor as well. But the reason I bring him up is because of a trademark that Peter Hyams likes to do. He likes to name at least one character in his film Spoda. I know we've talked oh. about this before. That gentleman does get the nod for that. But some of Mr. Harvey's bodies of work include such things as Creepshow Part 2. He was in the segment Old Chief Woodenhead, which is really good. He was in the film The Untouchables, Eight Men Out. You might have seen him in Miami Vice. He was in Casualties of War, which is actually a really good film with Michael J. Fox and Sean Penn. He was in Hudson Hawk. He was also in such things as Taint Girl. You might have seen him in The Thin Red Line. He was in also The King of Queens. I mentioned some of his voice work because he was in Batman Beyond Return of the Joker. He's done some work on Public Enemies in 2009. Gangster, Gangster Squad. Squad. It was really I like cool. that movie. Yeah, let's see. He was in The Deuce. And more recently, people have probably seen him as Jeff the Cab Driver in Better Call Saul. Yeah, that pretty much rounds out our cast and crew. There's a lot other actors and actresses I haven't named, mainly because they do like little bit parts here and there, but you gave us a brief synopsis as well. We should give you some warnings heading into this film. There's a monster. Definitely a monster. There's some decent gore and blood in this film. Better blood than gore. I agree with that. But the gore is there. Yeah, it's not bad. Including like brains being out. That's the sort yeah. of thing you're getting. Lots of into. decapitations. Yeah. Oh yeah. There are lots of decapitations. Language. Yeah. There's some language here and there. That's about it. Yeah. It's you know if you're familiar and comfortable with creature features, you'll be right at home with this one. Let's find out how the relic made us squeal. How does that make you squeal? All right. 1997's The Relic. Danny, do you have any prior experience with this movie? You know, going into this film, I thought I'd seen it at least once. And then as I was watching it through my first viewing for this review, I was like, you know what? I don't think I've ever seen this film. So I don't think I have a history with this. No, you know, after watching it twice. So, yeah, 
I think I was imbibed with some false memories. <laughs> I have seen this movie easily at least 20 times. Wow, that's awesome. Here's the catch. I haven't seen this movie since at the latest 2000. Yeah, it's been a while. 20 years is a long time. This is one of those movies that came out while my mom was working at the convenience store in town that rented movies, and I fucking watched it and fell in love with it for some reason. I have also read the book. I've read the book at least twice, because it happened during a period in my life when I was rereading a lot of shit, too. That's like awesome. Everything I'd read, I almost always would reread it as well. But yeah, it has been at the latest 2000, probably more like 1999. It's been over 20 years since I've Man. seen this thing, so... I was really kind of hoping more memories would come flooding back, but that's a long-ass time period. Some things did views, flood yeah. back. I'll bring up some of that shit, because awesome. some things did sort of come back to me, but it felt familiar, because I had seen it so many times. It was almost like weird precognition, where I'd know... I wouldn't have been able to tell you what was going to happen in the movie, but when I got, like, two seconds before something was going to happen, like, oh, yeah. I'd be like, oh, yeah, okay. Nice. Oh, yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, okay. It's like, yep, uh, yep so this that is starting fun. to fall into place. That was fun, nice. yeah. Well, cool, man. Yeah, it's always fun to revisit films, especially ones that were kind of formative films, so to speak. Because mm -hmm. I would imagine for you, 97, you know, when you were like... I was like, 10. Yeah, so, I mean, that's it's a perfect age to watch this style of film, too, for a creature feature in mm -hmm. modern times. So, yeah, I can see that. And for me, too, I think 15, 16 was 1997, so... There was a little bit of a stretch where I didn't watch a whole heck of a lot of horror films, especially in the tail end of the 90s. Mm -hmm. A few here and there, but not as much going into the 2000s and beyond. And even a little bit prior to that, too, early 90s, I was watching a lot. But things change. Yeah, so beginning of this movie, right? The homeboy's out in the jungle. He's getting scared by a dude putting on the face paint. And we understand why later, especially because he's on drugs, apparently. Oh, yeah. And we know how shit gets on drugs. But when you put all this back into the context of what they described, and this is the spoiler section, so I'm just going to say the Kathoga to be later on, where it's basically a bioweapon that the tribe would use. Mm -hmm. Does that mean this first scene is basically being like, hey, 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 stay the fuck out of our business, Whitey? That's what I felt after watching this film. And the second time, I think, reaffirms that opinion, or at least that theory. So yeah, I agree with you there. He's like, we're going to be nice to you, but we're sending you back as a weapon because we don't want any more of you other motherfuckers coming up and sticking your nose in our business. I think the big bad, or at least the tell in that particular sequence, is his use of photography. Mm. You know, because this film is predicated upon one of the many themes in this is superstition. So I have a little bit of history, like a, like this much of history. So I'm barely holding up my hands. <laughs> but... I know certain tribes, whether it's indigenous or Native Americans, because I've had this happen, where use of photography or video is kind of like, you know, frowned yeah. upon because of belief systems and whatnot. So I was like, ah, oh, if we're playing it on that, then it makes sense why when he drops it and the whole mythology with the Kathoga and things like that. It's like, okay, I see what they're doing here, and that's pretty clever. They're starting right off the bat with superstition, kind of on the sly. Right. This movie did a good job of tying together everything that they sort of set up. It really did. I have no complaints with the writing in this at all. Because then you get into, like, the docks and... What's his name? So we have Degusta, which is Tom Sizemore, and then Roner plays Hollingsworth, the sergeant. So those two. They get called out to the ship. 
Part of the reason why is after John Whitney, the guy who's down there, That's the anthropologist. Say, yeah, because yeah. he's all frantic about. Right, because he's expecting the, the crates, yeah, going to Chicago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he already had a bad trip. And his vision was the Cathoga. We don't know what that is at that particular time in the film. No, other than looking back on it, that costume's that guy. pretty good. <laughs> that costume's pretty also good. I was saying, it makes sense when you watch it more than once. And so he freaks out. He sneaks aboard the ship. He doesn't find the crates he's looking for. It looks like these are for an import company because they're like rugs and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So he's, you know, he's like, ah. And then we see the crates that he was looking for is on a truck heading probably for a different, like an air freight, I suppose. But what, like you were saying, the next thing that we get is like six weeks later in the port of Chicago, there's a, a ship that arrives. And this is the second time through. I was like, oh, I see what you're doing here. This is clever. This is using Dracula, like the device of Dracula. I was like, oh, there's an empty vessel with crates on board. We don't know what happened. You know, um, it's like, yeah, oh, it's kind of clever. That's definitely there. There's something else that jumped out at me more, but that becomes more apparent a little bit later on in the movie. I'll bring that up then. The thing I noticed the second time through is dude's like, he points out the tunnels that they eventually realize that yeah. the monster must have come up and how they get the other group out from the get-go. Oh, yeah. He's like, what the fuck are those tunnels? And dude explains it to him. And then later on, he finds out how mm-hmm. far the tunnels go. And it's so quick. Right. That's what I'm getting at. It seems like they're just, you know, just expo or just, you know, some banter. But it's important in this film because of what it leads to later. Use of foreshadow. It's really cool. All right. So earlier on when I said that some of the gore wasn't that great, Mm -hmm. it's specifically this first finding the bodies I'm talking about. They hold the molds, the faces and shit looked fucking brilliant. Yeah, considering. The camera just lingered a little bit too long on like the ragged ends of the stumps. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it just... It can kind of take you out of it a little bit. Yeah, it didn't look that great, did it? Like No, not the ends. I know what you're saying with especially that. Especially the ones in the water. Some of the ones later on not bad. in the movie, like when they're up on dry land and shit, look better with like right. the wet blood on them and stuff. But yeah, some of those ones yeah. floating in the water, I was... Yeah, they're like, eh, it's not bad. I mean, we get it. And I was like, didn't Stan Winston work on it? Yeah, but I would imagine he had some hands too. Like, yeah. No, help out with this. We'll give you this one. Look, that's maybe one of my only slights against this movie. Yeah, honest, and so. that's it doesn't distract from the film, I don't think. But I know what you're saying. It's just a, a minor kind of gripe. One thing I did note, this is a two-part, is the classic cat jump scare once again. <laughs> Peter this Himes one, likes to do that shit. This man. is one of the ones where I feel like it doesn't make sense. It's like, what the fuck is the cat doing there? A... Because if you're, if you're exploring a barn or a house that isn't yours, I will forgive the cat jump scare. Exactly. Otherwise, it is the cheapest fucking jump scare you can fucking pull out of the goddamn bag. <laughs> it was. I was like, oh, there it is. There it is. Something we pointed out not long ago. And the second there we one. Go. That's my other fucking ding against this movie. Yeah. Fuck it's... your cat jump scare. <laughs> We've seen it a lot lately. The other one in that two-part series is another use of superstition. Wait, also, I'll forgive it in those two circumstances I brought up. I still don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're saying, man. We learn that D'Agosta is superstitious because he's asking if the cat was black. Was it a black cat? Mm-hmm. That's like, okay, that's the start of his little routine. All right, and so after that, one week later, we get the introduction of like a group of, well, starting off with two school kids, and then as a group of school kids who are on a field trip at the museum. They get killed in the book. 
I read that. <laughs> I actually did a couple of YouTube reviews on the book, listening-wise. And I was like, oh, okay. I wanted to know the difference. Mm -hmm. But this is our introduction to Dr. Margot Green. And first thing that I was like, I can forgive her because she's cute because I don't like the Blackhawks. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't know any better. <laughs> But she's riding her bike to the museum, and I like the little exchange she has with the boys, you know. Oh, yeah, that was good. That's not that bad. Good. And it sort of reminds them, you know, hey, your class is going in. They have the little exchange, you know, with the security guard, all that friendly stuff. And uh... All right, so once we're in there with the Dr. Lee shit, he has a little bit of a point. Yes. It's not your grant till you get it, bitch. <laughs> that being said, and something this movie never goes into... They treat him as a smarmy asshole because he's a smarmy asshole. He should be the most hated man in that office right now. Oh, yeah, considering. And she even points that out, too. She's like, it's not just her. She's like, I would lose my whole research team. They'd be out of a job. Yeah. He has to work with these people every day. Yeah. And now they know that. Right. So I did have, this is so minute, the gripe was exactly what you're pointing out. I was like, this is a little bit of taking that entitlement thing a little too far. Right? And she's like, mine, my grant, my... It's like, hold on now. I'm like, he's got a little bit of a point. Yeah. But he's an asshole, and he's being a giant asshole, and should be treated as a bigger asshole by all these people than he is actually treated. And, yeah, that's a little bit of the gripe that I have with that. No, I understand that. I don't know how much different from the book, but it's... I know he's supposed to be an asshole. Yeah, the book... But I don't think he dies, does he, in, in the book? Right. In the book, he lives. In the book, it's not Dr. Lee. It's Dr... It starts with a K. He's uh, Japanese-British in the book. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead that's of Chinese-American. Yeah, I did read and that, And so too. they changed the name when they got a Chinese-American actor, which is actually, like... Pretty smart. Yeah, I, I was going to say, like, really good on them. Cause I was going to say, think, yeah. Especially, like, 97. I don't know how many films would actually go out of their way to change the fucking that's the character name. That's a very, very solid point, representation-wise, yeah. I don't know. Maybe it happened more often than I can think of right now, but... Maybe it's just because I don't know the behind the scenes on some of those other that's, movies. Yeah, you know what good, I mean? But good solid point. But good on them. Yeah. But no, he survives because I guess we'll jump a little bit towards the end to explain the difference in his character. It's a big thing that he survives because he sets up the book sequel, Reliquary, which I have also read, but it's also been 20 years. But he synthesizes the hormone and... He strips some of it away, like it's not like full-on turning people into monsters, but he starts making money as a side hustle oh, by damn. selling it as a street drug. Oh, shit. <laughs> Got a hustle going. Yeah. I hear you. <laughs> damn, playa, playa. <laughs> so that's something I noticed, too. I was like, oh, this is interesting, like this dynamic she's having, because she's not really coming off as... I won't say she's not likable. I'll say she, with her Grant thing, it's like, uh... But then all's forgiven because of her dynamic with other characters. But we learn about Dr. Frock, right? Because he's showing her the relic, right? Yeah. She's like snooping around in the office and it tells her about the Zenzanera tribe, which is in South America. Whitmore or is the most charming character he's in this really entire good. movie. Effortlessly charming. He was amazing. I wanted to just sit there and be like, this isn't even shit I'm that interested in. I'm kind of interested in it. Like, we're into this sort of shit. Like, of course I'm interested about yeah. somebody talking about a fucking death god. But <laughs> I'm like, can I just sit in on one of your classes? Because I know you're not a real awesome. professor, but you're making me want to listen to you be one. <laughs> it makes learning a lot better when you do have somebody who has a, a way of... Charisma. 
yeah, charisma, and it's just a way of explaining things. He does it well. And this is also where I wrote down that Dr. Whitney's crates have arrived via air freight. And that mm-hmm. was like what played out mm-hmm. from the beginning. All right. Anyhow, I wrote down that Kathoga, I think in the book, it's a tribe. So, yeah. So one of the smart things the movie did was change the name of the monster. Because... Oh, I saw what it was called. It was like Mbue or something. It's Mbun. Yeah, Mbun. That's hard to say, let alone yell or scream. Yeah, watch out, Mbun's coming. Like, what? So, in the book, the monster's Mbun, and the tribe is Kathoga. Right. Yeah, and I think that is a smart switch. I know a lot of people probably don't like it, because typically the books, you know, hold a little bit more brevity, and you don't want to detract too much. But I think on the film's part, it was clever for that same reason. It's easier to say Kathoga. And, you know, the tribe... It isn't really the focal point in this film. I mean, it should be, but not in a larger mm-hmm. context. You know, at least he gives them expo, you know, about, like you were saying, death worship and all that shit. Like, made a pact with the devil and drives away their enemies and whatnot. So what she does, though, Margot, is because the leaves are in those crates, they think they're not really there for a reason, but they notice that fungus on it. And then he yells, you know, like, yes. <laughs> yes, Margot, you can. <laughs> yeah, so good. she studies it, yeah, and they burn the rest. And I was like, okay. Knowing that later on, it makes sense for why the Kathoga is doing what it's doing in the museum, or at least hunting the way it hunts, right? All right, this is where you're talking about the two boys in the museum in the book. They get it. And they this, get it. They don't. So instead, they use the security guard, Fred, who, that does piss me off too. <laughs> you're going to do him like that. I was dirty. Two times. No, in, I read about that Jurassic, was it Jurassic Park? four years. Because he's the guy that gets killed by the Velociraptor in the opening minutes of Jurassic Park. Mm. That is fucked up. But I did read that too. (laughs) But then he's going to go off. He's fucking security guard at a history museum. Yeah, man. And this isn't Night of the Museum. This is boring ass shit. So he's going to go get a little high. Like us? Like we probably would? And it's a horror movie, so he gets killed because he goes off to get high. Yeah, it's fucking... And he's black. Bam, two whammies, right? Pretty but vicious. Whatever, like, it's a horror movie. That'll happen. The shitty part of it is when they're later on investigating it as a crime scene, the one asshole is about to write it off as, it's cool he got fucking murdered because he yeah. was out here smoking, smoking pot anyway. Pot. Once again, movie is progressive enough to have D'Augusta point out, like, yeah, dude, that's only a misdemeanor. Dude shouldn't get killed over that shit. Yeah, for smoking a J in the bathroom. He even cracked the fucking window open. He's at least that respectful. He tried. Yeah. If he's smoking that sticky, though, that ain't oh, gonna man. help. No, no, And no. he does that little wave in front of his face. That ain't gonna do him a fan it out. <laughs> that ain't never worked. No, I have history with that, too, not working in bathrooms. I pretty much guarantee my neighbors knew as soon as we sparked these up. <laughs> I was glad that Augusta pointed that out. Yeah. No, no, you're right. He uses If only reason. because we see too much of that bullshit in modern day, where some bullshit will happen and cops will kill a black guy and yeah. someone will bring up the fact that he got arrested four years prior. Yeah. It's like, what does that have to do with now? That doesn't mean he deserves to get fucking killed. Right. That doesn't justify the means and doesn't justify the means. That's crazy. So, yeah, I know what you're saying there. I did get a little peeved by that, but I think that was part of the exchange for mm-hmm. what you had just mentioned with Sizemore's character. So that was cool. At least he's like, you know, leveling the playing field once again. He's <laughs> like, oh, bitch. Anyway. 
the two boys, they you know realize that their class is left, it's starting to close, they go to the stairwell, and you start to hear the noise. And like I said, that's when he gets to the security guard. And then what we get out of that, I think in between, is because she's still in there and so her research team is the funny skeleton gag. I actually liked that. that I thought fun. that was actually really good. That was fun. That was really cool. Then because of the crime and shit like that, the murder, so, uh, that's when the cops start to arrive once again. At this point, we've been in the museum long enough that one of the memories popped back into me. Or less a memory and more of a realization. I'm a big fan of the Dresden Files books. Dresden takes place in Chicago. Nice. Uses a lot of very Chicago landmarks. A few of the books have ended up inside the museum. Nice. I always picture it in my head when I'm reading those books. What it's like to be inside the Field Museum? Yeah. As this version of the museum, whether it's changed or not, because I've never been there. Yeah. But this is how I picture it. It's because awesome. I've watched this the movie film? so many yeah, times. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So now you have a visual representation when you're reading it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. That's nice to have. Now, what I did know, doing a little research on this, is that Peter Hyams grew up in Manhattan, and apparently, like, right across the street from the Natural History Museum, like, I think it's somewhere up around the 70th Street, some, so like 74, 75th Street, something like that, in New York. So I thought that was kind of neat because he wanted to film it in New York City. Oh, okay. But they wouldn't give him permission to film inside of the museum. And so he was trying to look for museums that were similar to the one in New York. And Chicago was like, yeah. Yeah. We got the bratwursts. <laughs> <laughs> we got the good mustard. <laughs> and the bears. And the bears. Yeah, it's like, man, I always enjoy watching films that are in Chicago because it's such a kind of a historical city from the 80s and 90s for me, just growing up. Mm-hmm. So it was cool seeing them in Chicago. I was like, all right, hell yeah, Chicago. But along the way, like I said, the cops arrive the next day, right? He needs to question Margot about the murders. And here's something else I saw, too, with the superstition is when they were in the bathroom investigating the murder and all that shit. So he saw the broken mirror. And we always know that broken mirrors bring bad luck, seven years bad luck or mm-hmm. whatever it is. It's like, okay, that's cool. She actually walks by, Margot, that is, freaks out. I was like, her screams are not bad, given, like, it felt kind of authentic. Yeah. It's horrified. <laughs> She should, I mean, it's pretty fucked up what she walked up in on. I mean, she, she made a good her point. Goddamn fault. Yeah, her it is her fault. fault. She shouldn't be looking in when you see a bunch of cops in her room. <laughs> but, uh, you know, she granted, she did say, hey, you know, maybe next time you want to close the door. <laughs> so I don't see that shit. He apologizes, whatnot. As all that wraps up and it gets back to D'Augusta talking to Cuthbert, mm-hmm. this is where... You pointed out the Dracula reference earlier, but this is where it it shouted something else to me completely through this and most of the rest of the movie. As she's pushing for them to hurry up so that they can at least keep the gala open. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I know what this is getting at. This movie is Jaws. Jaws, it is. It's Jaws in a museum. (laughs) Because there's another huge, I think, exchange between two characters that if that doesn't spell it out, I don't know what does. Mm-hmm. So it's coming up though, but there are a couple other like little superstitions things going up along the way. Of course, we learned that the name of the exhibit that they're going to have for the gala is superstition. Like, uh, go figure. The other one too is a Roner is about to step over the security guard's body, and the Gus is like, "Don't, uh, don't, don't do, do that. that. Yeah, don't do that. You don't want to do that." So you know he's setting up all these superstitious things. It's like, okay, this is cool. There's a superstitious exhibit. Now I read too. 
that the design of like the opening going yeah. into that exhibit is modeled after something we've actually talked about before, just more recently. Pazuzu! No. Was from the Divine Comedy, like the opening going into the River Styx, oh, I believe, okay. or whatever. Yeah. That's cool. I was like, oh, okay, there's another reference there. I wasn't really looking for that, but just reading, I was like, oh, okay, that's I'm interesting. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So, you're right. They're setting up the gala. They still want that to go underway. Degas like, you know, wants to be procedural. He's like, ah, there, there's a fucking, there could be a killer in here, you know? Which sets up something pretty soon, which is really fucked up. How soon is it till he actually gets, like, the tour through the place? I think they're starting to do this right now. Because that's when you get Chekhov specimens. Yeah, I saw that. I was like, she walks in past the maceration tank, and she's walking around, like, the storage area where she's going to be at towards the end of the film. It's like a bad place to light a match. Uh-huh. Even the expo. It's like, yeah, it's foreshadowing things to come. I wrote that down, too. Once again, superstition comes into play. She spots a penny on the ground, heads up. You know, we know the whole bit. She picks it up anyway because, you know, every penny counts around here. Shouldn't have done that. I mean, no, we, the monster would have hit anyway. But. <laughs> All, right. All right. This is a scene in the film I really enjoy. And I, I got to give her credit because okay. she fucking nails her part in this. And that's the Dr. Zweizek who's doing the autopsy. 100%. Fucking brilliant. I loved her in so this. So good. So fucking good. And I've pointed it out in a couple other things, like when we talked about Terrifier. I love, like, quirky, really funny morgue attendants anyway. Yeah. Medical it, examiners. It is fun because of it's not what you expect, the humor. Yeah. But it, I it love does when make they're sense, quippy though. rather yeah, than weird. It. Sometimes they just make them weird. Yeah. If you're going to do that, you got to lean into like, it. Yeah. I do like this because she's funny. She's knowledgeable. Like, even though she's an actress, right? And I'm wondering in my mind when she's saying what she's saying about the cuts and what she's finding with the skull and the the brain. And it's like, that's a lot of biological terms and anatomy terms. And I'm thinking, I was like, I wonder how much of this that she really knows. I mean, I know she knows while she's saying it in the script. I think... I honestly think they might have pulled it word from word from the novel because they actually did a lot of homework for a lot of different things in the novel. That's good. A lot of the things in the novel are pretty damn accurate from what I understand uh, when I researched that. See, I was wondering that. If you're just doing expo for expo's sake, it's like that's a lot of terminology to try to remember. Although I will point out, we already mentioned the name of the creature is Mbwan. Mm-hmm. In the novel, I, I forgot I should also mention the creature is a lot, looks a lot different. I've heard that too. It's in a more like human, so it maybe the, not as creature like the, the legs are still saurian, like they're still lizard like, they're still long tail, but then the upper body is more just like a giant fucking gorilla, and so it's a little bit more obvious that it was human at one point. Gotcha. Whereas this is like, but. It's nice to know, though, Mm -hmm. if we're going to compare and contrast, right, from the source. So the whole point here in this exchange, right, she's clever. This is the woman I was mentioning who was married at one time to Whitmore, Dr. Frock. (laughs) That's pretty cool. Classically trained, I would imagine. They were probably the two best performances in this for me, for my money. I think, yeah, and for their scenes, every time they're in a scene... I know she's only in that. Yeah, she's only in that one, and he's only in like two or three, but... But Nails it every time. Mm-hmm. Nails it every time. All right, so this is the exchange with Margot. She learns that the fungus from the leaves contain animal hormones because when she was running those tests, it comes back. 
Why would a virus code for animal protein? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Right. All right. Superstition exhibits what I wrote down. I put not a whole bunch, but there's a few things going on in between her learning that and her trying to leave the night, but she winds up going in the exhibit and she gets spooked, right? She hears that wheezing. The exhibit itself looks pretty dope. Yeah, it's I would have liked to check it out. It was still kind of under construction, it looked like. I was going to say, it also felt kind of weird that they were exhibiting things through that they had no idea what they got. Like, they hadn't time to research Kathoga yet. Oh, yeah. They just had barely (laughs) uncovered it from all of its fucking grime. And they're like, and here's Kathoga the Death God. And looking this way. Right. (laughs) What I think, the way that they play that off is with the people who are like the donors and all that shit. Mm -hmm. As long as it looks aesthetically pleasing. They could give a fuck less about all the information that goes into that. But eventually they have to have a plaque there, right? Like, yeah, you would think, right? And that's why I think it's just for the people who, who are the donors, the wealthy. Money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just walking them through. It's just, just, like you said, it's just a party. It's a gala. It's rubbing shoulders and shit. All right, anyway, what I liked about this is she starts to panic, and she runs off, and she hides in the bathroom. It's like, all right, this is kind of a little bit of a mirror that's going on here mm-hmm. because the way this is set up, you're expecting her to be attacked by Kathoga because of what happens to the security guard in the bathroom. You know, she hides and then she peeks out. It's so funny, man. It's the janitor. She's wheezing. She's got asthma. <laughs> yeah, I was like, that, is, that was actually pretty good. I got to give the film credit there to throw that in there for a little bit of She sold it humor. pretty well, too. Yes, she did. I was saying, she does a good job. She really does for that part. She does a really good job. Hot take, this is a really good movie. I actually enjoy this film. Yeah, I really do. I was like, it's man, simple. Is, yeah, there's not a whole lot to it, but it's enjoyable. It's really well done. It's Jaws in a Museum. Like I said, it's good. It, it is really good, and I'll continue to explain why, right? <laughs> All right, I put down that my next note is the expo that we have with Dr. Frock. He is um, introduced to Degasta because of Margot. What he says to her is kind of clever, too. He's like, I'm not here to ask you out. And it changes her mood. She's like, I'm not here to socialize, blah, 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 blah. And he's like, I'm not here for that. And it's like, I want to talk to the doctor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then she was like basically saying that, oh, you two would get along because you guys share, you know, a superstitious nature. And then he explains the Kobe, the, was it like the Kobe tribe? And medical miracle. yeah. The no Callis- this is where we learn about the Callisto effect, his theory about uh, where life gradually, uh, by natural selection, but sometimes there are evolutionary changes that are grotesque and short-lived, aberrant species. That's part of like his theory on that evolution part of it, yeah. This part was kind of yada yada over. They mention this, and then it just so happens to be that he's right, technically, mm-hmm. and he's living in a time period where it's happening. Yeah, around him. a place where it's happening. He says that once with no reason why he thinks this is something that happens. Yeah, exactly. We don't know his reasoning behind it. I mean, other than maybe superstitious belief. Yeah, there's not a single sentence for why he actually believes. No, he just bases it off, I guess. It's like I said, he's explaining a little bit of that Kobe tribe, but that's all we really get. And that's, you know, it's kind of made up anyway, but (laughs) that's not the point. Is it just to let you know that that is going to play out a little bit later on? And it also leads into the credence behind the whole shit that's going on in the first place, right? Not too long after this, because the gala is about to start, 
you know, he's sending off teams to go check down on like the tunnel or the basements and shit. And that's where those two cops wind up gunning down that homeless dude. How lucky are they that they caught a serial rapist? <laughs> he was a rapist. He had the security guard's wallet on him. Mm-hmm. He was the perfect suspect. He even had an axe. <laughs> right? It's like, this fucking guy, man. Dude had it coming anyway. Yeah. How? I, somehow. Just a weird coincidence, right? And hadn't been picked off by the Cathoga. Wasn't he supposed to be wanted in questioning for uh, some other murders? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fits the bill. And so what that's doing for DeGosta and for everybody else is they're like, oh, we got the guy. This is the guy, right? And he's like, and there's ah. no reason to say why not other Everything, than a hunch. Right. He's like, I, he's like this just doesn't feel right. You're right. He's just going off a hunch. Everybody else is like, we got this guy. Let's, we got to get this gala underway. And arguably, I mean, the axe could be used to sever the head off pretty easy, but... It would be hard to use an axe in a way to pop open the head where you could pull the brain out that intactly. Yeah, you would have to have... And knowing that guy's state and condition, he would probably have all kinds of forensic evidence on him. Yeah. Right? Brain matter and whatever, skull fragments and all that shit. You're kind of right to have a hunch, but I understand everyone being like, no fucking dough we got him. Look, we just shot to death a fucking serial rapist. He's got his wallet on the... You know, what the fuck you want, man? Right. (laughs) But this is where this mini sequence that happens. But this is Jaws. They got the wrong shark. All right. This is the phone call that we get, right? Mm-hmm. The head of security for the museum, this guy, uh, Tom Parkinson's, where I wrote his name down as, he's like, oh, there's somebody on the phone for you, D'Agosta. And it's the mayor. The mayor's like, hi, Mr. D'Agosta. And he's basically saying, you know, it'd be a shame that I have my wife, who basically, because of her have cleavage... Have seen her tits? Yeah, he's like, she Everyone's basically won, won me... Tits. Yeah, she won me the last election. Single hand... Oh, well, double-breasted. <laughs> but uh, the whole point of this is, though, is like in Jaws, where the mayor is trying to shut down the cop because, like, oh, yeah, we've got our shark. The beach needs to be open. In this case, the museum needs to be opened mm-hmm. to let our patrons in, our donors in. Jaws. Jaws. I was like, if that is not Jaws, then I don't know what is. <laughs> but it's okay. I mean, it's not like a, a secret, right? It wasn't like, oh, we were, they were open about their influences and who were they paying homage to and things like that. So it wasn't like they were trying to do it <laughs> clandestinely is what I'm getting at. The next little bit of stuff that happens is actually pretty interesting too is Margot, because of her studying, she puts the leaves in, but that beetle sneaks into that little mm-hmm. container and when she brings it back out, it comes after her and she smashes it. That was a good jump scare. That got me, but it was earned. They showed that beetle. I just I had forgotten about it. All right. little side story really quick is when I was in, I think it was in Montreal. I think it was in Montreal. I went to an insectarium and one of the largest beetles that they had in their display was from Africa. It was like this huge I mean, it looked like what a scarab would be, but it wasn't a scarab. It was just a mm-hmm. huge fucking beetle. It could fly as well. <laughs> it's like, no, nah, no way. No, fuck that. So I understand the fright that she got from that because that thing was like like a melon. <laughs> Some things just aren't, man. It's ungodly. Australia is no different either. <laughs> you don't want to be out in the bush. I feel like the animals we have around here, for the most part, are pretty quote-unquote normal. Yeah, considering... And, like, I mean, I watch a lot of sci-fi and, like, fantasy and shit, and so I see a lot of crazy animals, and then I forget about how fucked up some animals on Earth are, and I get really <laughs> stoned, and I think about some of these, and I'm like, 
a fucking beetle that size is just at home in any fucking sci-fi thing I've ever fucking read. Yeah, but in horror and this... Fuck, fuck that shit. Yeah, it's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you know what? In that same situation, it's me or it. It's going to be me. <laughs> I'm not a fucking dead beetle. I'm not fucking around. That's a dead beetle. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. But it was for science because she winds up studying it. Right, she's running it through some tests. Well, uh, and let's be real, like, Thoga Beetle is going to get real nasty real quick. Yeah, so she finds out some stuff, right, about the beetle after her test. But what I wrote now is what's happening. And this, I was like, I don't think they chose these two dogs' names. Castor and Pollux? Yeah, it's just by chance or randomly, <laughs> you know. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Oh, so it's Castor. leading back into mythology once again, too, right? Mm-hmm. I thought it was well, interesting, well, too. What was the... I don't remember the Catherine Potter I wrote story. it down. Okay. I'm glad you asked. Good. Because I never remember that one. I just always remember the names. Okay. So, Castor and Pollux, the dogs in this film, are actually named after, whether it's Greek or Roman mythology, the twin sons of Zeus or Jupiter, but they're also represented by the constellation Gemini. Oh, that's Castor and Pollux. Okay. Yeah. So, two of the stars' names in Gemini are named, I think, mm. after them. Anyway, long story short, is they're going to try to use the scent of what they picked up on, right, from earlier to track down whatever the fuck is in the museum. And this is where I put that Margot and Dr. Frock discover a virus in the plant that inserts its own genetic material into the plant's gene. So it codes for animal proteins, right? Something is inserting it into the plant material. It's what they're learning. And once they do all these other tests, we learn, you know, it's produced by the hypothalamus. That's what we didn't mention earlier, but something's right. feeding on the hypothalamus of the victims. The hormones victims. all match. Right. Everything leads back. That's what it amounts to. So during this, right, during the gala, I think this is when everybody's starting to come in. At some point, you see blood dripping on this woman during the exhibit. We know what happens down on the floor, a little bit across someone like, else's that's, back. That's really cool. So even during this, because of the people that are down in the tunnel basements and all that shit, the dogs start to freak out. They run off. And one of the dogs gets killed, gets thrown back. While all that shit's going on upstairs, too, there's a body that drops mm-hmm. <laughs> during the exhibit. And people start to fucking freak out. Chaos ensues. We also learn where it's nesting because the ghost that goes down there as well with them. So in the movie, it's supposed to be that it didn't eat the other dog because it didn't have a suitable hypothalamus. That's what I figured out after attacking the first one. It just needed a snack. In the book, I do think there's still a dog that it ends up attacking on purpose, Mm. even after that's been established, because it still needs to eat. Understandable, yeah. It might need those hormones, but it also needs to eat. That's not something they really go into in this, but no. But it, I mean, it kind of it makes sense though. There's a little bit more about the monster that they don't really go into, other than the big reveal that it's homeboy. But yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's I, still I, I think the book logic would still hold true, and so I'll bring that up when it's more appropriate. Okay. So cool, yeah. So all like so all that's going on between the people upstairs freaking out. It's just chaos as they're trying to leave the museum, mm-hmm. and then the systems start to get scrambled. They go into kind of like a lockdown mode. There's a few people that get inside the mayor. I think the Blaisdells. Oh, homeboy, he's Greg Lee, that is, the Dr. Lee. He's all excited, you know, because he's wanting to talk to those people for the grant. Mm-hmm. And what we have is, I think this is when Roner's upstairs, and then there, there's a switch that happens eventually. But those two security guards, like one goes off. I think he finds out that things got frayed 
when he comes back, the other guy's mm-hmm. decapitated. Then he gets it. Dagasta winds up getting those walkie-talkies because he gets back up, right? He finds the dog. They go back upstairs. He's getting Roner to, I guess, trying to get them to go to the tunnels because they figured out that's a way out of this place. You know, there's a way it leads out. And what I like about this is when he does have that walkie-talkie, he's, he's like, I need to talk to the mayor. <laughs> and they have that reversal. He's like, with all due respect. Yeah. He's like, you need to shut the fuck up right now. He's like, Roner, you follow him, go to the tunnels, stay behind. And then you have, you know, a dissenting part that just wants to stay there because the cops are going to arrive any minute and get them out of there. All right, so one half stays, one half leaves. We get that little shit. I'm glad the half that stays stays because that sets up us finally getting to see the Cathoga. Which, man, it's good. Before, I think, yeah, in that too, the Gosta finds Margo and Frock because, they, you know, they got locked down. And when he finds them, that's when the, the Cathoga like jams or rushes into that that door. Man, I should have mentioned it earlier. I fucking spaced out on my fucking notes, but that body fall the skewered body was really fucking good. It is. It's fucking it's really crazy. Fucking good, right? Yeah, because when Rona goes in there in that exhibit, he's like, "We need to get out of here. Like, we need to get you out." And then the body drops. The woman's got the blood all over her face mm-hmm. and shit. And then the woman in the revolving door gets smashed up against it. It's like, these fucking rich pricks are freaking out. <laughs> yeah. That scene got played up hard. If, you, it's if good, you're though. really paying attention to some of the extras, it kind of feels like some of them are doing like ridiculous leaps into oh. like falling down the stairs just to be like, Extra. if I fall down the <laughs> stairs, then there's a higher chance that I'll make it on camera. Because they'll want to be showing the action that's going I was on. wondering how many of them were stunt men and stunt women as well because of that same thing. Because mm-hmm. so, they were taking some tumbles. Some of them were being extra, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. So this is where Frog kind of, he makes the discovery that his theory is real based off what he just witnessed, right? I was like, okay, that makes sense because of all that shit he talked about earlier. So what they decide is that he's going to stay behind because they can't drag his ass all the way back up. Because we didn't mention he's in a wheelchair. <laughs> right? He's like, I'll stay behind. So they split up. That's the Gaston Margot. He tells her the story of his lucky bullet. He winds up giving her the bullet, which the bullet story is kind of like, eh, you know. It plays in the superstition thing where he talks about, I think he walked up on a robber or something. Guy was going to shoot him. Mm-hmm. It didn't go off, but it should have. Is a perfectly fine bullet. Anyway, that's where we get something that plays a role down the road because of the superstition once again. I put Perkins, that's the head of security, the guy from earlier. He's bitching and arguing because Cuthbert, the little lady, she's like, yeah. Tom, you fucking fired, basically. She fucking fired him. <laughs> He's all pissed off. He's like, you know, come Monday, this shit will wash over. And then he gets snatched up by the Cathoga, and that's when shit really fucking starts to go off in this film with the monster. It's like, all right, here we go. Got his ass, snapped him in half. All right, so now the monster on screen. Hell yeah. Cathoga, super inventive in my eyes. I liked it. I much prefer this version over the books. I wish I would have given myself more time this weekend to go take a look. Like I said, I watched this movie like 20 times between 98 and 2000. It made a huge impression on me. I can almost bet like fucking dollars to donuts that down in my fucking storage unit where I still have some shit tucked away that I grabbed from my house when I moved out from when I was like growing up that I have notebooks in there with like drawings doodles yeah like doodles of like monsters 
not exactly the Cathoga, but I would doodle shit close to it, like inspired by it all nice. the time. Yeah, you had and a foundation. I don't know, like hundreds of times. Like that's awesome, man. Oh, yeah, I, I can almost bet fucking that there's some a hundred feet from where we are right now. That's awesome. Hell yeah. <laughs> no, that's it. Made a huge impression on me. This is that's one of really my cool. favorite monsters. It's a really dope ass monster, especially when you see it up close. Let's try to describe it. How would you describe it? If this is the first, because oh, this isn't a normal monster. It reminded me a little, like just a little bit of the creature from the host. Okay, similar yeah. to that, especially the way it moved and stuff. Right, right. It's similar. I mean, they don't look identical, of course, but yeah, their movements are kind of similar. Body shapes kind of similar. Yeah, a little bit similar. It made me feel like that a little bit. Like that's something I could attach it to as far uh, as comparisons. More hair up front. But right, definitely like lizardy towards the back. Right, in the middle, it's got just the super fang. Oh mouth. yeah, so it's it's a little bit like the predator's mouth when it opens up. Yeah, and then two eyes. Yeah, but you're right because it's a chimera. <clears throat> mm-hmm. It's represented by different things, like a lizard. They mentioned in this one, it's a Turkish it's gecko. To be super lizardy, but yeah. there's not much lizardy to that face or anything. Some beetle, which makes sense, right? For the mandibles and shit. What else? Well, we know it's part man, too. So, I mean, but it's got a lot of shit going on. That's what I'm getting at in this film. So, and here's another just huge note that I made from this where I'm saying this is actually a really fucking good movie. 100% this is how you do bad CG. This was 1997. Did this look like 1997 CG to you? No, it didn't. They used it. They did it well when they needed to do it, right? When they needed to do it, intermixed with the practical, when they were up close and when they were getting like little spot shots. And found legitimate reasons to make sure that that crappy CG was hidden by the dark. Yeah. And by other shit so that you couldn't pick out all the bad details. I think It does not look like 1997. It really doesn't. And I think there was the clever use of shadows in this, lighting and shadows in Mm -hmm. this film, that hid the creature really well. It felt a little bit... And I think... You get moments where you get to see the creature in all of its glory. Absolutely. Kind of like Alien. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, it hides in the shadows, but when it comes out, you're like, oh, shit, this thing's going to fuck you up. (laughs) So, yeah, it feels a little bit like that. And you're right, hiding the CG behind the shadows and stuff and not keeping on the creature. Or doing it when it's moving fast enough that you can't really tell, like Mm -hmm. when it snatches the dude out of air. That's not bad. I'm like, "Uh oh, (laughs) that was fucking got him. (laughs) That's what happens. They start dropping in. They get wrecked by Kathoga. Every one of those SWAT team guys that come in there get fucked up. Yep. And the guy, you know it's going to happen. He's like, pull me up. And when they do, he's split in half. I read that they made him wear green pants, that that actor. Mm. So that way, you know, they could cut it out and put the blood and all that. Mm -hmm. I was like, that's pretty cool. Look good. Believable. All right. This is where it's a little bit bittersweet because this is where Dr. Frock dies. The Cathoga monster finds him. But when he comes face to face with it, he actually has a smile on his face. Because of the Callisto effect, mm-hmm. he proved a theory. So posthumously, you know, he's going to be known in the scientific community because of this. There's a version in my head that exists where somehow before the Kathogi is even in the room and he's face to face with it, instead of having that moment where he smiles while it's still behind the door, he reaches into his jacket and pulls out one of the leaves. <laughs> That'd be awesome. And he eats it, and they have a fucking Cathoga fight. Oh, hell yeah, bitch. It's on. <laughs> <laughs> now that he knows, you could. You should. I'm like, let's do this. <laughs> um, <nom. laughs> it's going to happen. 
this is where Margot and D'Agosta, right? And they're talking about um, freezing it. She's talking about the core temperature of it needs to be dropped. Mm-hmm. So they're already kind of figuring this stuff out because of the way, I guess, the hormones regulate and all that shit. Well, and I think just the fact that it's supposed to be like... it's At this point, according to the DNA analysis, it's 45% gecko, so that's cold-blooded. Yeah. It's only 33% human, even though that's what it started as. Yeah, and it's like that's when you can start piecing it together because the human thing's like, oh, that makes sense with Mr. Whitney in the beginning. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, this is also, too, where they find the corpse of Frock. She's had it now. She freaks out for a minute and then pulls it together and she's like, all right, we got shit to do. Yeah, we got to get the fuck out of here. All right, I put uh, Officer Bailey, that's a black cop. He winds up getting killed and decapitated down the tunnels because, you know, Roner, the sergeant, he's leading that little group out through the tunnels. He gets pulled down under first, that, that cop, and when he comes back up, he's done. Another look patron gets it too. Some woman in the crowd yeah. gets it. She gets it pretty good. We don't get to see exactly what happens, but... She's gone. Kind of fucked up, but what I was kind of hoping for right there is because it holds it up in front of them for a second, and dude with a shotgun is right there. Oh, yeah. I was kind of hoping he was going to freak out and try to shoot Shoot the the creature and shoot her. (laughs) That'd be awesome, too. Hell, yeah. (laughs) Got him. Degasa gives the lucky bullet to Margo. That's when they, I guess, they're going to split up. He's like, this just means I'm going to give you my dick later. (laughs) Let's see. Oh, yeah. The people make it out after this shit, right? They get out. The Gosta, like I said, they're about to split up because the Kothoga's caught up to them, right? So they split. He winds up getting the shit knocked out of him because she... Well, I don't know what happens. She goes into the lab. That's what he tells her. He's Mm -hmm. like, he's going to stand guard, lock the fucking door, whatever. And then that's when she starts, like, doing the freak out where she's knocking everything over, all the, the alcohol and whatever else she can. All right, so... With when the Kathoga starts following her when she's doing that, mm-hmm. with how much time she's taking to do that, <laughs> and how it's not giving a fuck, uh-uh. it's going full on beast mode. It catches her in, at most, three seconds. Yeah, it doesn't take long. He's toying with her. That creature is toying with her. I don't think he's toying with her. I don't think they were paying attention. <laughs> well, that too. I mean, I would like to believe that's what he's doing. Right? There's still a shred of that humanity in him that knows what he's doing. But we get the cuts back to him, and he's going just beast mode through yeah. shit. Running, knocking like, shit through. Stop. Yeah, especially, over, yeah, stop, through that, like, through the office where he's. And it started following her only, like, six, seven seconds after she left the room. Yeah. So she's, <laughs> she would have been done, son. <laughs> I agree with you there. All right. While well, this is going on, right, I put the Kothoga breaks through the glass ceiling, and that's when it starts chasing Margo, what we were talking about. And eventually she gets into what we saw earlier, like the, the Chekhov's gun. The glass gun. ceiling looked a little hokey. Yeah, I mean, I understand. It's It was all right. Yeah. yeah. It was all right. Yeah. It was none to it, right? It wasn't that great, but it got him in the room where it needed to be. Mm-hmm. And when she finally goes through all that shit, she has like this little cocktail, whatever she made. And the creature now is face-to-face with her, and she's like, I know who you are. And as soon as she says that, I wrote down that she had her Me Too moment. Yeah, because it's like, I'm going to confirm it by licking your boobie. <laughs> yeah, but he, he tasted her right before she set him ablaze, because that's what happens. And then she goes down. With them having redesigned the creature so much anyway, the more I think about it, the more I kind of wish that they would have given it, like, Straight up, like, human eyes. That would be cool. Because that would have looked so fucked up, especially that last part there. Oh, man. It's, yeah, that close up, and, you know, they're having that exchange and shit. 
You're right. She throws that shit at him, and he winds up catching on fire, the creature. But not before it gives chase once again. I was going to say, fire don't matter. No, 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 no. Thogus is like... It's supposed to be the son of Satan, and? according to this mythology, right? And? <laughs> yeah, and one. And, no, you're right, and. But she winds up going to that maceration tank. She jumps in, seals herself off, but not before... <laughs> she gets a chance to tell it to go to hell. It almost sounded like masturbation take. <laughs> that too? Mastication, <laughs> masturbation, whatever you got to do in it, right? So it seals off. It blows up the creature. Slowest explosion ever. Yeah. I was like, Michael Bay probably would have been a little bit proud, but he's like, I could do it bigger. It was like, it was, it was so slow. It was like the tantric version of Michael Bay. <laughs> calm and collected, calm and collected, like Sting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it was a little anticlimactic, but it wasn't that bad either. No, it wasn't bad. It wasn't, wasn't bad. bad. All right. Uh, anyhow, D'Agosta, he gets woken up by those cops, right? They find Margot because she's banging on the tank. Long story short, all this really is is like he tells her to keep the bullet. The last little bit of superstition thing that happens in this film, do you know what it is? Mm, no. They both walk around like one of the remains of the Kothoga, oh, its claw, right. whatever it is. Okay. Mm-hmm. Last little thing they do. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's clever. So that's. Well, and especially because now they know it was Homeboy. Yeah, exactly. So you still don't want to walk over Dead Body. The end. Not bad. I enjoyed it. Like I said, it's a, it's a rather enjoyable film. I think it's highly overlooked. I don't know. It should be a cult classic at some point. If it's not already. For the creature this alone, one is just saying, boss. It's and Stan a Winston. killer creature. Stan Winston effects are amazing. The performances are really good throughout. Even the characters in this, like the lesser characters, do a really good job. The cops, mm-hmm. the expos, you know, some of it's kind of like, eh. It's for a two hour, almost two hour films, like hour 35, and then with the credits, like hour 40. I was kind of surprised to 50, that. 50, something like that. <laughs> yeah. It's like you could probably chop down. 20, 15 or 20 minutes in this, and some of it could be expo, but because the expo is important to building that relationship with Dr. Whitney, what he was doing there earlier, and why that tea concoction affected him the way it did, mm-hmm. I think from a writing standpoint, I think it's good. It's well done. Yeah, because everything they do makes sense. It's, it's mm-hmm. logical, right? And then it leads back into the superstition thing I mentioned earlier, and all these references and films that they borrowed from and it was well done like yeah they showed their hand a little bit but it was their own thing too Mm -hmm. it helped build the story so i was like okay fun film great recommendation i know we've been talking about it for a while i mentioned earlier it's like yeah i don't think i've ever seen it before i know i have it now so i'm glad i did i'm so glad i revisited it this was a lot of fun i was thinking one of us watching this and knowing that this came out in 97 i was like man for Tyler, I can see this is probably one because of you know your age then too. It's like yeah, this one would definitely be one. If I were 10, 11, 12 years old, this'd be perfect fucking film. Yeah, I'd be all over it. Fucking heads getting ripped off left and right. Yeah, I'm like hell yeah. This is in the museum too. It's like fuck. that's kind of a scary thought because mm-hmm. they're big. You know what the fuck is lurking and perfect spot for a creature like this. It makes sense with the tunnels like you mentioned earlier. All that shit played out. Right, so everything had a purpose in this film, and that's another reason why I liked it too. It wasn't schlocky. Wrapped it up nice and neat. Right. I heard that you could consider this a B movie with it, like an A plus, A minus production value. Yeah, absolutely. For all the reasons we've mentioned. 
cinematography is good. Like I said, the music, the scores is not overdone by any means, but it, it hits its marks when it needs to. I'm also just really glad it held up and it wasn't just my memory. No, no, no. I think this is a really fun film, man. I could see... I'm really glad it wasn't just like having bad taste as a 10-year-old. <laughs> yeah, no. I think this is good for like kids are kind of tweeners, you know? Mm-hmm. It's good for that. I think it's good for people who enjoy some sci-fi elements, mythology stuff. If you're into science and kind of nerdy stuff, this is a fun film for that too. And uh, for people who like museum films... <laughs> There you go. Night at the museum, then this. All right. I did have two questions for you. Okay. All right. The first one I have is, is the Cathoga, would you consider it the equivalent of Man Bear Pig from South Park? <laughs> Dude, Cathoga kick Man Bear Pig's ass. Yeah, for real. But I was thinking, I was like, that's, that's kind of funny, man. Mm-hmm. All right. Second question, which you, you've already said, is like, is this the horror version of A Night at the Museum? <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, cool. And like so we've already talked about the themes in here. I mean, what I wrote down is just the superstitions with the tribe, Degasta and Dr. Frock, their superstition, and coincidentally the museum exhibit. Team Cathoga up with Samael from the first Hellboy movie. Mm. Hell yeah. The Hound of Desolation. Another theme I wrote down was the science versus mythology kind of debate. Mm. You know? And the relics. We do have to mention the relic <laughs> is important in this film. I was like, I wonder, too, a little bit influenced maybe the Pazuzu and Exorcist. Right. Pazuzu! Right? It's a relic. <laughs> That's true. That's true. It's like there's a little bit of influence there. I mean, not to that extent. I mean, no right. possessions, but, well, a little bit. But not not in that, not in that context, no. I suppose. But, uh, yeah, like I said, overall, it's a fun film, man. I lean with what we opened up with, too, is the way this film plays out. It's like... You know, don't go fucking around other people's cultures and snapping pictures and trying to take relics and shit. It doesn't end up well. It doesn't end up well. Ask homeboy that got turned into Cathoga. Yeah, I think it's a it's a Holocaust. it's a slight commentary on that. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, I enjoyed it for that just as much. We haven't decided next week yet, have we? We have not. I'm kind of excited to see what we have in store. So we're gonna go figure that out. Before we do that, it'd be super, super, duper awesome. Do you have anything else to say about this movie before I move into this part of this? For those like me who thought they'd seen it but haven't, do yourself a favor and go see it because this is actually a really fun film. It really is. There we go. Now go hit subscribe. If you're listening to us right now, that'd be super cool. That way you can stay up to date with all of our episodes. If you can rate and review us if you're listening to us now, that would also help because the world is ran on algorithms and that helps us get into them more. Along with all of that, you can go check out our entire back catalog over on our website, www.friedsquirms.com. You can contact us through the website or by emailing us, squirmcast at gmail.com. While you're at the website, you can click the links up at the top. We are part of the Earworm Podcast Network. Go check out the other shows on the network. Listen to me talk about nerdy shit over on General Nerdery. Listen to my co-host there. Go talk with another one of his buddies about war, war gaming, war philosophy, 40K, all that good shit. Over on the Art of War Gaming with more shit to come. Find us on all the social medias as Fried Squirms. Just search for us for what comes up. Am I missing anything? I think that pretty much covers the basis. Like Once again, too, suggestions, recommendations for films, for future reviews, and independent filmmakers. Let us know if you have a film that needs some eyeballs on them. 
When you guys give us recommendations, we don't have to go then try to think about shit after these episodes. I know. That's, that helps us out. Helps you guys out listening. So, yeah. Just let us know. Uh, yeah. This week, I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. Fried Squirms. Out. out.